coming to St. Anthony's tonight. Reverend Gordon Walker will speak on baptism and the born-again experience. We've asked him to contrast some of his past understanding of baptism with some of the or some of the contemporary concept of born again and also the idea of baptism in the Orthodox tradition in light of some of the contemporary meanings on the born again experience. Reverend Walker is currently pastor of the Holy Trinity Orthodox Church in Franklin, Tennessee. He is a graduate of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. He has further studies at Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary in Berkeley and at Ohio State University. Brother Walker was the coordinator of the African Affairs for the Campus Crusade for Christ International, as well as the director for the Campus Crusade for Christ in Ohio. He has served various Baptist churches in Texas, Alabama, and Ohio. He and his wife founded the Grace Haven Christian Community and Ministry Center in Mansfield, Ohio in 1968. He was one of the founders of the New Covenant Apostolic Order in 1973. And then beginning in 1979, he served as a co-adjurator and one of the founding bishops of the Evangelical Orthodox Church. In 1987, he and others of the Evangelical Orthodox Church were received into the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Church of North America by Metropolitan Philip. Presently serves his community in Tennessee and does a lot of speaking. He's been a good friend and uh, allowed uh, many people to get to know him as I've known him for the last year or so. Um, we're pleased to have him here tonight. And what we asked him to do is give a presentation and feel free to open up with some questions and dialogue uh, at the completion of his presentation. So, Father Walker. very much and it is a privilege to be with you. Let's have a brief word of prayer and we'll get immediately into the topic. Please stand. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for this time together. We thank you for each person here. We ask that the Holy Spirit will enlighten our minds and hearts and that as we study together and study from Holy Scripture that we will understand better what it means to be children of God, to be in the kingdom of God, to be in the family of God. We pray for each person here and ask that your Holy Spirit will speak to each one. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father George, for inviting me. And also I want to thank Father Nasser. Father Constantine Nasser, who has had me here in Oklahoma this past weekend in his church, and uh, for the, the privilege of sharing this time here. I also would like to mention some special dear friends of mine uh, with whom I had dinner this evening, uh, Dr. and Mrs. Holderness over here. Uh, we go back a long way, and uh, we knew, knew each other back in Mansfield, Ohio. Uh, when my wife and I lived there, and uh, uh, we, we have some very, very close ties of friendship and love through the years. Now let's talk about the topic, baptism and the born-again experience, uh, which uh, Father uh, Eber asked that I talk to you about. First of all, the topic raises two questions. 
The first question is, how does baptism relate to the new birth? And secondly, how does experience relate to the new birth? Uh, because we're talking about baptism and the born-again experience. In other words, what does it mean to be born again, and how does one gain or receive it? Now, I'd like to pause for a moment and say to you that though uh, I have been involved with a group of men studying theology for many years, I don't profess to be a theological expert. Uh, I'm at best a student of the Bible. And so, uh, for years I have uh, taught in, uh, out of the scripture on a verse-by-verse -verse basis, and I was extremely happy when I came across the commentaries of St. John Chrysostom because I felt so at home with this great uh, man of God in, in his approach to Holy Scripture. Uh, I was telling the Holdernesses at dinner tonight that uh, one of the reasons I like him is, number one, he does a verse-by-verse -verse study of books of the Bible. If you've ever used any of his commentaries, you know that that was his approach. And incidentally, I think probably all the Orthodox people here tonight know that St. John Chrysostom, uh, the, the, very, the very title Chrysostom means golden mouth. And he was perhaps the greatest preacher in the history of the church, a very powerful preacher, and uh, used to pack out his churches, his audiences were filled as he preached and taught from Scripture. But I think the second thing, in addition to his verse-by-verse -verse, uh, study of Scripture and teaching and preaching from Scripture, the second thing I liked about him is, he's, he, as we say down south, he chased rabbits. <laughs> he was always off on this little tangent and that little tangent, and when you read his commentaries, it's his tangents that you almost enjoy the most. And uh, I, I don't know that I could even begin to compare myself with that, but these friends of mine know that I was always off on rabbit trails as I used to teach from the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and that's how they came to know me was as a, as a Bible teacher. So I could at best claim to be a student of the Scripture, not even a scholar of Holy Scripture, and a student of theology, but certainly not a theologian. So, it may well be in the question and answer uh, time tonight that you will have certain questions that I have not answered. I may even raise questions for you instead of answering some. But these questions that, uh, that I've posed, how does baptism relate to the new birth, and how does experience relate to the new birth? In other words, what does it mean to be born again, and how does one gain or receive it, are extremely important questions. They're vital because they affect our eternal destiny. For the evangelical Christian, especially Baptist, which was my particular background, and many others, everything hinges on a born-again experience. Everything. And I can remember in my own background how much I felt that if I didn't have the right born-again experience, that I, I had no hope of going to heaven. And that put me through a period of great doubt when I was in college. I really struggled over that. Uh, <clears throat> I went through three years of intense doubt because I could not produce all the 
the, the right criteria for the born-again experience in my own mind. And I, I doubted if I had truly been saved. So that was a, it was a very hard time for me. Now for the Orthodox, this issue of the born-again experience is a confusion of terms. And I hope before I finish tonight to try to, at least one of my goals is to try to separate out these terms and try to hopefully interpret them in such a way that uh, it will have some uh, positive uh, benefit to you. For the Orthodox, it's a serious misunderstanding of the issue of one's salvation. And for sincere believers on both sides, whether it be evangelicals on the one hand or Orthodox on the other, the issue is a grave issue and, at, uh, and there are strong emotions surrounding them. I've met some Orthodox that get extremely upset uh, when they talk to people about the born-again experience because they feel that there are certain issues of the that uh, surrounding salvation itself and what constitutes salvation that are greatly confused by the experiential-centered kind of uh, religious teaching and, and so forth that, uh, that evangelicals focus on. And so they feel very distressed by that and feel like that this is a, a hindrance to one's uh, full understanding of, of the faith. Now listen to what I have to say, and I don't want to turn anybody off at this point. I hope you'll follow me through on it. It is my contention, and listen to this carefully, it is my contention that true Christian baptism cannot be separated from the new birth. And I'm going to take you into Holy Scripture about this in a moment and hope to prove my point with you. But true Christian baptism cannot be separated from the new birth. And of course, conversely, the new birth cannot be separated from true Christian baptism. Okay. And furthermore, it is my contention that the experience of conversion or spiritual renewal that many experience or have experienced may be separated from baptism and the new birth and in fact most often is. And what I'm simply saying is that I believe that there are a lot of people who have experienced the new birth and I'm going to I hope to prove that to you from Holy Scripture through, through baptism which is my understanding of the Orthodox perspective and then later have experienced some kind of spiritual renewal uh, in, a, in maybe a variety of ways. And I think that the confusion of the terminology and the confusion of what that experience means is what has caused a lot of, of let's say, more heat than light. And I hope that my comments tonight do not generate more heat than light. Now, Let's come back to what I've tried to say. I've said that it is my contention that true Christian baptism cannot be separated from the new birth, nor can the new birth be separated from baptism. But the experience of conversion or renewal may be separated from baptism and the new birth, and in fact most often is. 
I further contend that the biblical view of baptism and new birth and conversion or spiritual renewal is drastically different from what is currently being proclaimed under the heading of the born-again experience. Let me say that again. I contend that the biblical view of baptism and the new birth and or a conversion or renewal experience is drastically different from what is currently taught uh, under the heading, the born-again experience. Now, before I talk about this from the Bible, let me give a little bit of background about my own uh, upbringing and my conversion to the Orthodox faith. I was brought up as a devout Baptist in a devout Baptist home. I had my own personal encounter with Christ at age 10 when I was called to come forward, and we called it in the deep south, walking the aisle. For, you know, you had to walk the aisle of the church down to tell the pastor that you wanted to become a member of the church, and that you were accepting Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And uh, I, now I don't recall using that terminology. I was only age 10 at the time. What I do remember was it was a very real experience for me. It was a very real emotional experience to walk the aisle of that church after I had sat and listened to the preacher's sermon Sunday after Sunday. And I can well remember that process of listening to what he had to say. And that went on for several Sundays until I felt this emotional pull that I had to go and respond to his, quote, invitation as was used to come forward to accept Christ and be a member of the church. Now... The thing that sealed it from my perspective now as an Orthodox Christian is that I was taken later to a very cold creek by the name of Turkey Creek near Pinson, Alabama, and I was baptized in very cold water. And there's one wonderful thing about being baptized in, in cold water. You don't ever forget it. <laughs> and I remember specifically being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That I remember too. The pastor was at least faithful in using that formula, and I will say for the non-Orthodox present, that's very important from the, from the perspective of the, of the Orthodox Church. And uh, we'll come back to that later on. Well, uh, I later felt a call into the ministry. I went on to college to be a, a ministerial student in the seminary. Graduated from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And then uh, became a Baptist pastor. Uh, well, I was actually a pastor during college and seminary years because you don't have to be a seminary graduate to be a Baptist pastor. So a total of 12 and a half years of my life were spent in, in the pastorate of Baptist churches. Later in 1963, as Father George pointed out, I went into Campus Crusade for Christ. And those years from 63 to the early 63 to late 68 were some of the happiest years of my life simply because I loved working with college students and I loved talking to them about Christ. It was a wonderful thing. And, and yet, some of my searching, which had been going on even as a Baptist pastor, because even then I could, I, let me just say this is a little of a personal note here, but I can remember uh, one time in particular, but this actually happened more than once, but I remember very clearly one day, one Saturday night, as I was 
on my knees with my Bible, preparing my sermon and praying over my sermon for the next morning. And I was preaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter out of the book of Acts. And I, the tears started coming down my face as I said, Lord, why is it that I am not experiencing in my church what I am reading about and preaching about? There is something missing. And I, I struggled with that as a pastor. What was wrong? What was missing? And I couldn't tell what it was. I thought, well, I, frankly, I became disillusioned as a pastor. And I thought, Somehow the church that I'm experiencing, I know, is not what I am preaching about in the New Testament, even though this was a mission church that I had basically started from the ground up. And whatever was wrong with it was wrong with me. And I didn't know what to do about that. So I decided the next best thing to do was to go into campus evangelism. Peter Gilchrist came along, now Father Peter Gilchrist of the Antiochian Archdiocese, and he was uh, then the Big Ten Regional Director for Campus Crusade, and he recruited me as a staff member for Campus Crusade. And my wife and I locked up our house. We hadn't even sold it at that point, and had church members take care of our children for three months while we went off to Chicago and to the Chicago area to train under Peter Gilchrist in Campus Crusade for Christ. And it was a tremendous leap of faith for us. And God did honor those uh, acts of faith. And I believe we, we have to walk in whatever light we have. You can't walk in light you don't have, that's for sure. And so he honored that struggling walk of faith on our part. In, in 1968, we moved to Mansfield, Ohio, and there we established a ministry center still continuing to work with college students and high school students as well as teaching adult Bible classes and so forth. And that's when it was, uh, I think, about 1969 that I first met you, uh, Dr. Ms. Holderness. In 72, we moved to Nashville. And then in 73, we started getting together again with some of our old Campus Crusade buddies. And that was sort of a, a reunion of sorts in Dallas, Texas in the summer of 73. We were all struggling with the issue of what is the church. In fact, the main reason for leaving the staff, I remember I was going to tell you, I would talk with Peter Gilchrist, my boss, back in Crusade days, and I'd say, we ought to baptize these kids. We're, we're winning them to Christ, but we're not baptizing them, and we're not having communion with them. Now, I, I certainly did not view baptism or communion in a sacramental way. Uh, I viewed them basically as simply symbols only, but still I felt it was important to be obedient to Christ, and we ought to be baptizing these young people and having communion with them. But he says, you can't do that. We're not a church. We're parachurch. It's against our policy to do those kind of things. And so that struggle went on. What is the church? What is the church? How should the church function? When we had our chance to do it entirely on our own there in Mansfield, and that for, for a period of time, I was answerable absolutely to no one. And I want to tell you, the worst pope in the world is your own pope. When you are your own pope, that is the worst tyranny you'll ever be under. 
Uh, one thing I learned is that though there were many wonderful things happening in those days, one thing I learned is I didn't want to be on my own. That after a while, I had, had to have someone that I was accountable to. That I, I couldn't see that as being right in the church either. Or, obviously, the, the apostles had a... They, they had a jurisdiction over those churches, and St. Paul expected obedience out of his spiritual children in Corinth and Thessaloniki and various places like that. And so he, he had a definite jurisdiction over these people. There was authority, and there was hierarchy in the early church. And when we began later to read the Apostolic Fathers, we clearly saw this. Well, it was uh, finally, as was read tonight in 1979, that we formed what was called the Evangelical Orthodox Church. Uh, that came through much prayer, much struggle, uh, many tears, sometimes fist, almost fistfights. <laughs> I thought we were never going to get out of some of these conferences without a fistfight. We so strongly disappointed. Disobeyed, uh, disagreed with each other. And, uh, and out of all of that, the Holy Spirit worked to draw us into a highly committed group of men who were determined to find out what the church was really like. I will never forget reading from the Apostolic Fathers the letters of St. Ignatius. Now, when you have written when you've held the views that I held about the church and the, the sacraments of the church, and you read St. Ignatius, and you realize this man was made a bishop in the city of Antioch in the year 68 AD, and he was martyred in Rome in the year 107 when Trajan the emperor came through the city angry because he lost a battle and decided to make the scapegoat, the Christians a scapegoat, and he called the bishop in, this time, by this time a very old man who had been serving Christ faithfully, appointed by the apostles to be bishop in that city. And he came before Trajan. Trajan said, you must burn incense before my image, and he wouldn't do it, and so they, he, he judged that he had to go to Rome to be thrown to the lions. On his way, they stopped in Smyrna for a, a rest stop. And he wrote in one of his letters that these soldiers, this company of soldiers, were like animals or like wild beasts. They must have been very hard to get along with. And uh, they, the surrounding churches all sent delegations, their bishop usually, and some of their priests, their presbyters, and some of their deacons came. And he wrote about these men. He wrote about the churches. He wrote about the early church life, the way the church functioned. He wrote about the, his love for the Holy Eucharist. And he, he's the one who coined the phrase, it's the medicine of immortality. And I, when I read that, it just it struck my heart. I said, this man had a view of something that I had never seen before. Now, this was very early in our journey toward the Orthodox Church. We saw something about the depth of church life, the depth of worship, the way the church functioned, 
with its hierarchy, godly hierarchy, and with the way the whole thing formed a beautiful, holy priesthood to the Lord, that when we saw this, we said, this is what we were missing. We had wanted something so desperately and sought it for so long, and yet we were missing. So finally, uh, we, we set our journey toward orthodoxy. We started calling ourselves orthodox before we had ever met an orthodox, because we'd read the orthodox fathers, and uh, we found that the theology of ancient orthodoxy uh, so beautifully answered questions. As Peter Gilchrist put it, Father Peter, he said, we're now understanding the verses we never underlined. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, evangelicals have a way of underlining all these favorite passages, but then there are big gaps, you know, the verses you don't underline. And it was those verses we didn't underline that suddenly started making sense to us. And we said, boy, so many questions were being answered. Well, I forgive my lengthy discursus on my background and conversion to the Orthodox faith, but I share that because I think it's out of that that these next remarks will have more meaning to you. I'd like to take us through the scripture, and if you did bring your Bibles, it might, it might be helpful. I told the holdernesses to bring theirs, at least, and so if you didn't, you didn't have the advantage of my having dinner with you tonight. But uh, Anyway, I want to take you through certain passages in the Bible concerning baptism and the new birth. Let's see what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. And uh, we'll begin in verse 20. <clears throat> this speaks about Christ. Perhaps I better back up to verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. I never understood that until I became Orthodox in so many of our hymns that make that clear as, uh, uh, as he preached to the spirits in prison and, uh, and as he uh, led captivity captive and brought all of those spirits out of Hades who formerly were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype. In other words, uh, this, this type that he's given here of eight souls being saved through water, he's saying the antitype of that, which now saves us, namely baptism, not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. But notice he says that baptism is the antitype that now saves us. Ooh, when I used to read that, even in my evangelical days, I knew that verse was there and it used to worry me all the time. What did he mean? Baptism now saves us. Well, he meant baptism now saves us is what he meant. Now, let's see why. 
turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. St. Paul makes this statements, uh, these statements about baptism. I'm sorry, it's uh, Colossians chapter 2, I believe it is. Yes. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. And we'll read some more verses out of that in a moment. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now Paul is going to draw a direct parallel between the circumcision under the Old Covenant and baptism in the New. And this is called a spiritual circumcision without hands, and it results in the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh. And then he says in verse 12, Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also, also were raised with him, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now the scripture is very clear. We are buried with Christ in baptism and we are raised with him from the waters of baptism uh, through the working of God, through faith in the working of God. So we believe that God is at work in baptism, that something happens there. I remember reading St. Cyril of Jerusalem in his catechetical lecture lectures, how that he uh, said so forcefully that once the, once the catechumen has been prepared for baptism, he says, he would say to them, you are going to meet Christ in the water. You're going to meet the Holy Spirit in the water. You're going to meet God the Father in the water. Well, I'm going to tell you, if you've been properly prepared for that, once you got baptized, you knew you had met the Holy Trinity. Uh, the, if you've ever read Anne Field's book, From Darkness to Light, if you haven't, I recommend you get it and read it. She describes the catechetical process of the church in the 4th, 5th, uh, well, basically the 4th and 5th century and early 6th century. And it was an incredible process, but it was pretty well standard procedure to bring the people into baptism. And when they were baptized, incidentally, they had experienced 42 exorcisms by the time they got into the waters of baptism. Uh, that's interesting, isn't it? I, I think if we got back to that and put people through 42 exorcisms before we baptize them, we might have less problems in the church today. But uh, uh, Forty of them were lesser exorcisms. One of them was a greater exorcism by the bishop before the whole church on the third Sunday of Lent. And then the, the last exorcism took place in the, in the baptismal service itself. But the point is simply this. They were prepared after much instruction and teaching to meet Christ in the water. It was the working of God in the water that brought about their salvation brought them into union with Christ. You see, St. Paul tells them they were going to be joined into union with Christ, buried with Him in baptism. Then look at Romans chapter 6, a very familiar passage. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. 
Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now St. Paul says, when you're baptized, you're baptized into Christ. And you're joined to his death. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And of course he goes on to talk about what it means to be raised with Christ and to be joined with him in Christ's resurrection. To have died with Christ to sin, to have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. It's a wonderful chapter. I love Romans chapter 6. And one of my favorite chapters is Dr. Holness well known. Anyway, the point is simply this. In baptism we are joined into union with Christ. I want to take you to another passage. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. <clears throat> now, I can remember years ago teaching verse by verse through Galatians, but somehow I missed this connection. I don't remember how I got around it, but I did. In Galatians 3, 26 and 27, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I used to really love to preach on that. You're sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. What I didn't read, the verse I didn't underline, was the next verse. Verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Pretty simple, isn't it? Apparently, Paul saw no contradiction between faith in Christ and baptism into Christ. And so, it seems to me, and I, I think we'll see a number of other passages in the moment along this line, that it is clear that one of the things that happens in New Testament baptism, in the baptism of the church and the faith, is that we are joined into union with Christ, into his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, another thing we see about baptism in the New Testament, in Colossians, again to Colossians 3, Colossians chapter 3, Verse 13 and 14, let me finish reading that passage. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now obviously somehow forgiveness is related to the baptism because that's what this whole passage is about having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was, necess which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And we could go on and read that that's just a portion of a beautiful passage of Scripture about our union with Christ and all that that means to us. Now, in baptism, our sins are remitted and washed away. That's what the Bible says anyway. Here Paul says, uh, he is relating the forgiveness of our trespasses to our baptism. Now, another passage that's very clear on that is Acts chapter 22, verse 16. And Acts 22 is a very interesting chapter, and I won't have time to take you through that whole passage. What I'd love to read is verses 1 through 16. 
the story of Paul recounting his personal experience with Christ as he's addressing the mob in Jerusalem there at the temple uh, because they'd caused a riot. They thought Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple and it caused a big riot in Jerusalem. And Paul had gotten arrested and he asked the Roman guard if he could speak to the crowd. And they got the people quiet and he started telling them how he had been a faithful Pharisee and so forth and he had persecuted he called it, I persecuted this way to the death, there in verse 4, uh, binding and delivering uh, into prison, prisons both men and women. And then it, he goes on to say, he was on his way to Damascus, when about noon a great light from heaven shone around him about me. Now that's where Paul had his initial conversion experience. This great light shone around him, about him, and he says, I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me indeed saw the light and, heard the, and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And you remember he came to, to Damascus and a certain uh, devout man, uh, according to the law, there it says in verse 12, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there. He was a devout believer in Christ. He came to him and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Now already Saul's had a conversion experience and a healing experience. And at that same hour I looked up at him, then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth, for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And listen to verse 16. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. My goodness, he's already had a conversion experience and a healing and he's still got to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins. I'm going to jump ahead of myself. I've already tipped my hand, I'm sure. I think the confusion and what, in the way, the born-again experience is taught in, a, in evangelical circles is that we, in the past, I have been guilty of this, of telescoping everything into one thing. And just said, well, if you just get born again, if you just get converted, and of course we, we equate conversion and born again, but they're not the same, and we need to make the distinction that the Bible makes. And here, Paul has had a conversion, he's had a healing, but he still has to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins. So, baptism, in baptisms, our, our sins are washed away. And by the way, in that same book, of Acts, if you'll look to chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 38. Then Peter said to him, Repent to them. Remember, this is at the end of his great sermon on the day of Pentecost. He says to them, Repent. You know, in our, in our liturgies, we always pray that we will live a life of repentance. I love that part of the prayer. And that... Uh, Repentance isn't something you do once. It is very much a part of our 
ongoing life as a Christian. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice that the remission of sins is directly related to baptism. Just as Paul said later in Acts chapter 22. And as is definitely included in the reference to in Colossians chapter 3. Verse 13 and 14. Alright, let me say another thing now. I've said baptism saves us in this respect. That in baptism we are joined in the union with Christ. In baptism our sins are washed away. Now then let's look, look at another thing we find about baptism. In baptism we are regenerated or born again. Turn to John chapter 3 verses 1 through 8. John chapter 3 verses 1 through 8. We are regenerated or born again in baptism. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't even spiritually perceive it. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, I used to have problems with that passage, and I would just go all the way around trying to figure out how to interpret that passage. And I used all kinds of analogies and things like that and explanations. When it says you must be born of the water and the spirit. And I would try to say, well, that's not the water of baptism. But I want to tell you, once we got into studying the ancient writers, the early fathers of the church, they all consistently said it's baptism. And one of the things we had to come to grips with is that we didn't have the right to private interpretation, as St. Peter says. For he says, no scripture is a private interpretation. That when it came to a contest between our interpretation and what the church had been saying it was, we had to bow to what the church said. It's not our right to come up with a private interpretation of Scripture. And so, this verse, I had to bow to what the early fathers of the faith said. And they say that he is, Jesus is speaking of baptism when he said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to jump ahead of myself and say, obviously, the Orthodox Church is incurably sacramental. <laughs> there is no way to get around it. You cannot be Orthodox without being sacramental, and you can't really ultimately be sacramental without being Orthodox. Now, by sacramental, I simply mean that God does use physical means to convey His grace into our lives. Does He not? He started out with the Incarnation. This is the season of the Incarnation. And He used the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary to house the eternal Son of God. And thus she is called the Temple. And there are songs and hymns that sing to her about her being the Temple. And 
and she is, she is the mother of God in the sense that it was God in her womb, not that she was the originator of divine nature, but she provided the human nature for the eternal Son of God who took upon himself true humanity in the womb of the Blessed Virgin. So when the church speaks of her as Theotokos, or God-bearer, or mother of God, it is, uh, in, with my background, I thought that was blasphemous. Somehow we were putting Mary above God. But it was because I didn't understand what the church was saying. And so, we have to protect the true humanity of Christ and the true deity of Christ. The early church taught that God used physical means to convey His saving grace into people's lives. Sorry about that. I keep forgetting I'm walking around. <laughs> and he, he used physical means to convey saving grace, beginning with the Incarnation. And there are all kinds of means that God uses to convey grace into our lives. Once you see it, all of life becomes sacramental. Everything is sacramental. Life itself is sacramental. The beautiful sunshine is sacramental. You can't live without it. It's grace being poured out upon us, whether we're in the church or out of the church. But within the church, we have the sacrament of baptism that conveys grace to us. We have the sacrament of communion of the Holy Eucharist which conveys grace to us and is very much a part of our salvation. Extremely important, extremely important to our salvation. And this is the rub that you'll find with so many today that place all of salvation into a conversion experience but do not realize the sacraments are a part of salvation as well. See, that was where I, I misunderstood I felt that everything had to focus in the conversion experience. But obviously, Ananias didn't feel that way. Saul had already had a conversion experience on the road to Damascus, but that wasn't enough. He said, arise, let's be baptized, washing away your sins. There were still things that needed to be done. And even once one has been baptized, that's not the end of the story. Again, jumping ahead of myself, but... We can say, I have been saved in the sense of being baptized. I have been joined into union with Christ. He is the source of my salvation. But I must also say, I am being saved. As Christ is working out His life in me, as I walk in communion with Him, as I receive His body and blood Sunday by Sunday, as I live in faith and love, I am in the process of being saved. And by the grace of God, I shall yet be saved. One day, I will be saved. All three things are true, is it not? We, we would not, I think you'll find, those of you who are not Orthodox here, will find Orthodox extremely reluctant to answer the question, have you been saved? I said, well, I'm being saved. I, I hope I'm being saved. And that's one of the things you'll get as an answer from most Orthodox Christians, because they feel it is very presumptuous to say it's as though we're already finished. I have been saved. Now there are passages in the New Testament that give us a lot of assurance along this line. And thus, and there's a sense in which you can say, yes, I've been saved. I have been baptized into Christ. I have been joined into union with Him. 
I wish I had known the truth of the sacraments when I was a young man in college because I could have saved three years of the most agonizing years of my life because I felt that the only hope I had to be sure I was, quote, saved was that I'd had the right kind of conversion experience. And I remember going through these inner doubts saying, but I was only 10 years old when that happened. How could I have known what happened to me? It couldn't have been a, an adequate salvation experience, you see. And that's where doubt just, just killed me. If I had known what I know now about the sacraments, I could have said to that devil who loves to make you feel doubt, you know, the, the Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. He constantly tries to bring doubts into people's minds. I could have said, Satan, be gone from here. I was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I am enjoined into union with Christ. And so, yes, I have been saved. But if I had fully been taught, I would have said, but I'm also in the process of being saved. So leave me alone. Stop this cross-examination. Well, well, I want to talk about that a little bit more in a moment, but I, I feel it's important to discuss one other passage here on this matter of regeneration because it is a parallel to what Jesus said in John 3, and it comes out of Titus chapter, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Titus 3, 4 and 5. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done. Now notice it is not my self-righteousness that provides the basis of my salvation. But according to his mercy he saved us. And he does use the past tense there, doesn't he? Through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now what did our Lord Jesus say in in John chapter 3, we must be born again of water and the Spirit. And here he specifically speaks of the washing of regeneration. And when I re read what the early commentators of the, of the church, the ancient church, say about that, they all say that's baptism, the washing of regeneration. So the Bible does not speak of baptism as a symbol, or a symbol only. Certainly there's certain symbolism in baptism, but it is a mystery. In a mystery, grace is conveyed to us. Saving grace is conveyed to us. Then how does re baptism relate to conversion? Or to renewal experience that so many have had in this day and age, and that is a big thing. There are many people, I'm sure people in this room, who were baptized maybe as an infant or somewhere along the way, as I was at age 10, some of you later. And then, after you were baptized, you had a conversion experience. Interestingly enough, in St. Paul's life, his conversion experience came before his baptism. Uh, the same thing happened to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius, the, the Roman centurion, had some kind of conversion experience with the Holy Spirit coming upon him and, and being poured out upon him before he was baptized. But St. Peter would not let the process end there. He wouldn't stop until he baptized him. 
And uh, so baptism in Peter's mind is what's essential to one's salvation. Now, how do how does baptism relate to all these conversion or renewal experiences that so many have had subsequent to their salvation to their baptism? Well, first of all, I think it's extremely important to understand that the Orthodox Church believes, as I've already pointed out, that baptism is a mystery. It is a sacrament, and the word sacramentum means mystery. And uh, the two words mysterion in Greek is translated sacramentum or in Latin. So the two mean the same thing. We believe that there is a mystery about baptism. And that when one is brought to the waters of baptism, in a mystery they are joined into union with Christ. In a mystery their sins are taken away. Their sins are washed away and they're forgiven. Their, their trespasses are removed. In a mystery they are regenerated or born again. This, this is the, the mystery of baptism. Now here is the rub. Ever since the Reformation, rationalism kept, uh, crept in very strongly into the church. And it became essential to have a mental, and now in more recent years, an emotional experience attached to your baptism, or subsequent to, or prior to, or somewhere, to make your baptism effectual. And so, there are many people who said, well, I wasn't really converted when I was baptized. I was converted later, so I need to get baptized again. So you have the Anabaptists, and I was one of those, Anna meaning again, those who baptize again. And I've baptized some people more than once, uh, more than twice. Because a, a good Baptist, you know, it, it will put you in the water just as fast as he can. And, and I mean, he's going to baptize anybody that will agree to be baptized. And the word ana, anabaptist, meant to baptize again because they did not accept the validity of infant baptism or of baptism, what they call non-believers baptism. Now here's where the Orthodox Church would take issue. We in the Orthodox Church believe that when an infant is baptized, first of all, it requires believing parents. If there aren't believing parents, let's say in the case of pagans, and they, there were, was a, an arrangement made whereby a sponsor or a godparent could be assigned to that child, provided, sorry about that, Father George, provided the, the parents were in agreement, a, a believer, a Christian godparent could be assigned to that child, guaranteeing that the child would be raised in the faith. The church would not baptize pagan children unless there was some believer assigned to that child. Or you see, in a sense, there was a kind of uh, faith by proxy on the part of the sponsor and on the part of the parents. But, listen to me, I believe there was a faith in that child. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 18, verse 15. Then they also brought infants to him. This is an important verse. They brought infants to him that he might touch them. 
And when I look that up in the Greek, and I know there are some here that know it a lot better than I do, I found that the word means nursing babies. That the word used here, not it, this is the only place I know of in the New Testament where the word uh, is used in this context. But it's nursing babies. They brought nursing babies to him that he might touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. <coughs> but Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. I believe when those parents came in faith with those little infants, those little infants were trusting their parents, and I don't know what God saw in the minds of those little infants. They didn't know it was the Son of God blessing them, not intellectually and rationally. But I want to ask you, is it possible for the Son of God to pick you up in His arms and bless you and you not be blessed? It couldn't be. If He touches you, you cannot help but be blessed. Whether you know it or don't know it. Those babies were blessed even if they didn't know it. And I want to say to you, if an infant is baptized in faith, and the church has been doing this from as far back as you can trace it, certainly to Tertullian's time, even he did argue against it. And there are, there's evidence of even prior to that, and it says in the scripture that households were baptized several times, it says that. Certainly somewhere in one of those households was a baby. They had lots of babies in those days. Uh, if that baby is brought to the church, and the church is the extension of the incarnation, the church is Jesus Christ on this earth, we are the members of his body, and we are Christ in human form on this earth right now, and the church embraces this little infant and prays over that little infant, and the parents come in faith with that child, then I believe God honors that faith. And whether that baby knows it or not, he's born again right there. He's born again in baptism when he gets baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, all these verses I've been reading to you tonight don't make sense. When you get baptized, you're born again. That's what the Scripture teaches. And we've read lots of verses about that tonight. Now, you may not have had a conversion experience as an infant, obviously. But you may need to have a conversion experience later on. I've had a whole bunch of conversion experiences on my road to orthodoxy. I could point out several major conversions that have taken place in my life. I'll tell you, you don't come to accept what the Orthodox Church teaches about Mary unless you've had some conversion experiences. And you don't come to accept what the Orthodox Church teaches about icons until you have some conversion experiences, some little ones and some big ones. Not where I came from. But I'm at, I'm at peace with these things because I see the extension of the incarnation in all of this. God using these means of grace to bring, to pour out grace in my life. And I've never experienced as much grace as I have in the Orthodox Church. And I thank God for that. Now, <coughs> I want to say again that, and, and by the way, let me finish this about the baptism of these little infants. 
I remember my son saying years ago, when they start baptizing babies, that's when I get off. That was in our trek toward orthodoxy. But once we got into the whole thing, I baptized his infants and his babies and every baby we could get our hands on. And then the, the wonderful thing about orthodoxy is, you know, in every other church, once they baptize an infant, they don't give them communion until they become confirmed years later, sometimes 12 or 13 years later. But in the Orthodox Church, we're consistent. We give it to them immediately. And isn't it beautiful to see those little infants and they come up to receive the Holy Eucharist and you give it to them, what a, they just open their little mouths right up. Now they go, you, have you noticed, by the way, pastors at about age two, they start shying away and won't take it for a while. And uh, so you have to sort of uh, work around that. But then pretty soon they get over that little fearfulness and that shyness. And, and and to, I've now watched children grow up and become more and more mature in this partaking of the body and blood Sunday by Sunday. And I'll tell you, it is a beautiful thing to see. It is a beautiful thing to see. Now, it's obvious in reading the scriptures, Acts 2.38 makes that clear, and I read that a moment ago, that conversion and repentance are associated. The church prays that we will live a life of repentance. So there, if we are ever faced with the possibility of needing to experience a conversion at some point along the line. It may be a little tiny conversion. It may be, may be a major conversion like St. Paul experienced. But the only reason a baptized Christian would need to experience a major conversion is he's turned away from his baptism. He's turned away from that which was given to him in his baptism. And he needs to be converted back to it. Most of us are going to experience either small or somewhat larger conversions all along the way as we walk with Christ throughout our whole Christian life. You're going to come to a point and say, wait a minute, I was wrong. I need to turn around. And that's what the word conversion means. It literally means to turn around and go in a different direction. Do you remember when Jesus said to Peter the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, and he was in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, he said to Peter, Peter, you're, you're going to betray me, but I have prayed for you that when you are converted, you will strengthen your brethren. Now, St. Peter, he's talking to, says, You're going to have to get converted after you have been denied me. And that's what happened to Peter. He went out, he denied his Lord, then he wept bitterly, and he got converted. It, you know, before I used to read that, and I said, does that mean Peter wasn't saved before he got converted? I didn't know how, what, how to make any sense out of all this. The answer is, Peter was born again in his baptism and that new birth is that re relationship with with Christ is nurtured in holy communion and in faith and love and a walking of, a life of faith and love and obedience to the Lord and then when Peter stumbled so badly he had to get converted back and get on the right path again so my effort tonight has been to try to 
I hope not to muddy the waters, but to clarify the use of terms. Yes, I do believe that there are many Christians that need conversion experiences, renewal experiences, rededication to Christ as Lord. I have had many such experiences. But I do think we must not allow this term of the new birth to be disassociated from baptism. For it is in baptism that we are born again. And it is in baptism that we are joined into union with Christ. It is in baptism that our sins are washed away. That's very important to keep hold of. And let's not deny the need for conversion in people's lives. And when they have them, let's not put them down for having had them. Let's just try to keep them in the right perspective. Let's keep them in the right order. And uh, let's try to keep the terminology straight. Now, having said all of this, uh, as I say, my fear has been more uh, the one of, of generating more heat than light or of maybe even confusing you with things I've said. And I may have left out some points even in the Holy Scripture that we should point out. Uh, but I wonder if we have questions on this that uh, if you ask them, maybe it'll help me to clarify my own thinking enough to answer your question. Yes. I have one question. Uh, why Jesus pick baptized John in Jordan River? Is Jesus, he, son of God? Why he took the baptism? Well, I tell you, the Orthodox Church has one of the most beautiful answers to that, and I'm not sure I know all the answers, but I know one of the answers to that. The Church teaches that in baptism, in the waters of baptism, our Lord Jesus Christ sanctified the waters of baptism, so that from that time on, the waters of baptism have a special saving grace, because he, forever sanctified the waters of baptism by himself going into baptism. There were other reasons for that besides that. But that is a beautiful teaching uh, of, the, of the church. And so when we come to the waters of baptism, we sing certain prayers and chant certain prayers over that water. And, and in essence, we are dedicating that water to become the, the same water in which Christ was baptized. It becomes the waters of the River Jordan into which we are being baptized. And so his baptism was to consecrate the waters of baptism forever that we might be saved. Yeah. How do you address the position that his baptism was an empowerment for service? Uh, certainly the Holy Spirit came upon him in a special way. Uh, at, at the waters of baptism, but the, the church teaches, and we have other priests here, so please clarify this if I've missed this point. In, in the services at Epiphany, the church points out that it was in his baptism that was one of the great demonstrations of, and revelations of the Holy Trinity. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being revealed. That was really the first time that all three persons of the Trinity were revealed at one and the same place and time. To, to, it, it was, it, Epiphany is viewed as the baptism of Christ, it, it, at least in the Eastern Church. And that was one of the principal purposes for the Holy Spirit's coming down upon Jesus in the waters of baptism. I think the Church would say that that was not necessary to empower Christ to do His work or ministry because we're talking about the eternal Son of God. And uh, he, he had full power 
at all times to do his work. It was a commissioning. His baptism was, in a sense, a commissioning to his work. But he didn't need more power given to him than he already had. But it was a revelation of the Holy Trinity there in his baptism. Uh, am I right on that? Uh, you, you brother priest, want to clarify me on any of those points? But you also repeat the question when somebody asks it so that this will pick it up. Okay, I'm yeah. sorry. And there was a lot of people in the Jordan, and there was John the Baptist, and when the voice yells from heaven, this is my beloved son, which one is it talking about? Yeah, right. You know, which person? So, you know, it is, it, is primarily, it is primarily the revelation of the Trinity, and, yes. you know, this is my son, this one here, this is the one you listen to. The question originally was, if I'm right on this, how, did, how would I explain... Uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit at the baptism in order to empower Christ for his ministry. Was that? Well, or at least address that I have to take a class in which that's the professor's position. Well, that's the professor's position <laughs> about this. I have to address it next okay. semester. All right. The, the, I, I think that I'm right on this, that the, the church would say, no, he did not need to be empowered for service. He, he was the Son of God. The eternal Son of God. There was never. He was holding the world together. By his, it, the Scripture tells us that in Him all things hold together, and even on the cross, as He's dying, He's still holding it together. This is the mystery of the incarnation. That in the womb of the Virgin Mary, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit simply when Mary came into the presence of Elizabeth. Who John the Baptist is still in the womb, and. Uh, so, you know, this is some person who can even cause an, an unborn baby to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He did not need an empowerment from heaven because he was already filled with power. He was, if there was no, he couldn't have more power uh, because he was God. And God can't be given more power. God has all power. And so he was God in the womb. He was God as a baby. He was God as a child. He was God as a man. But in his baptism, he had never, it had not yet been revealed to the world who, who this person really was. He is the Son of God, and the Holy Trinity now is fully revealed. The three persons uh, are fully revealed at the baptism of Christ. When yes. Jesus refers back to uh, Isaiah when he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me, is that a type of that anointing that he was referring to? You mean in his baptism? Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, one might want to use that as an, uh, in some way to, to fulfill that passage. I would think, though, if you read some of the Psalms, it speaks of him as being cast upon God, the Father, from his mother's womb. Uh, as to that anointing in the flesh, in his humanity, uh, we might say that baptism certainly symbolized that anointing, but I don't think it gave him more power than he already had. Any other question? Yes. Uh, is the belief that the Spirit is received in the waters of baptism and then if so, how do we deal with the conversion of the Samaritans where they did not receive the Spirit until Peter and James came and laid hands on them? And then also Cornelius receiving the Spirit prior to baptism. All right. The belief is that, and I, I will try to explain that. I'm not saying, again, that I am a theologian that has all of these answers. 
But I think from the Orthodox perspective, when you deal with baptism, you do not deal with time, but you deal with eternity. Eternal things happen in baptism. We're joined into union with Christ. As to the sequential events, when they happen, they are still a part of baptism, whether they come before the baptism or after the baptism. The conversion that took place in the life of Paul, St. Paul was still related to his baptism because it was related to his being joined into union with Christ. The, the filling of Cornelius with the Holy Spirit is still related to his baptism, and I think this is the reason why Paul or Peter would not uh, finish what he was doing without baptizing Peter. It was essential that he finished the job. Uh, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the Samaritans subsequent to the time of their baptism, again, was related to their baptism. It took the apostles, I think the reason the Holy Spirit was withheld in a sense, was to prove to the Samaritans that the apostles were the ones that they were to look to for authority. Because you remember one of the struggles that the Samaritans had was they would not trust anyone from Jerusalem. Uh, and they still don't, by the way. There's still a few of the Samaritans left, and they don't trust anybody from Jerusalem for good reason. But uh, they, it took a special sign of power, I think, to demonstrate that the apostles were God's trustworthy messengers and trustworthy authority within the church. But the, the fact is, baptism still, it was in the, it, it was the locus of the empowerment by the Holy Spirit of the, uh, it, the coming of the Holy Spirit within them and upon them. And uh, our problem is we have to live life by sequences of events. You know, we have to live life one second of time, one minute at a time, one hour at a time, one day at a time. With God, that's no problem. Everything is now. And so uh, the, the, the fact that that I believe that the early church taught, and that is the position of the Orthodox Church, that baptism encompasses all of this, uh, is not a problem because baptism is something in eternity, not in time. It lifts us from time into eternity. I have one more question to add. Nobody can get into or united with God until be baptized in water. But one, uh, for example, the one who crucified with Christ and died and crushed him, when he started believing in him, he will get into the kingdom of God. And then somewhere in the Bible says, if you believe Jesus in your heart and you confess in your mouth and you get saved, and that's what we need. I, I will say this about the thief on the cross that you're speaking about who cried out to the Lord. He was, he was, and Jesus said, this day shall thou be with me in paradise. One might call it a rationalization, but I prefer to believe it was a spirit-led interpretation by the ancient church. But there, there were many martyrs who, were, uh, who could not be baptized in water, but the church viewed them as being baptized in blood. And they viewed that as being, if anything, a greater baptism than baptism in water. Uh, there, this happened many times when people got converted uh, to Christ and expressed that conversion. Even executioners, sometimes it happened with them that they would be executed with the people they were supposed to be executing. 
and they never had a chance to be baptized, but the church said these people were baptized in blood. Uh, the, uh, the rest of your question uh, just escaped me. Uh, oh, the passage in, in Romans chapter 10. Uh, I believe, again, that it's much like the, the, uh, the passage in Galatians that I quoted from Galatians 3. Uh, one verse says clearly, it's through faith in the Son of God that we become children of God. Uh, and let me read it to you just so I don't uh, butcher it. For you are all sons of God through faith in, Je in Christ Jesus. Now, you know, I, there was a time when that's all I ever read. That's all it takes, faith in Christ Jesus. But St. Paul says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, it put on Christ, the very next breath. In fact, uh, it probably, in, when he wrote it, he didn't put a period there. It just, the, the verse went on, you see. So that faith in Christ and baptism were not separated like they have been since the Reformation. And really not even in the Reformation. The original reformers did not separate baptism and faith. It's been in the last 150 years at the, at the most that that's happened in Christian thinking. Yes, Father well, Gordon, uh, just a question about your personal experience uh, when you were moving towards orthodoxy and as a Baptist minister who had baptized persons more than one time. How did you deal with the Nicene Creed which you decided to believe in one baptism? Well, I didn't accept the Nicene Creed. <laughs> it <was> just a... <laughs> no, it's an easy thing if you don't accept it. But on your journey to orthodoxy, how did you well, deal with Well, once we got into our journey to orthodoxy and we came across that, uh, that reality that this was a statement of faith by the church, and the church, so you're only born again once. You may get converted many times or several times, or a few times, whatever, but uh, the, you're only born again once, so you're only baptized once. And the church was very strong in not rebaptizing people. They went through some, there were councils of the church that were held to deal with this problem. Now, the, the, I said that baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is very important. Uh, it was true that the church did not consider it to be a bona fide baptism unless it had been done in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, therefore, it was not considered a rebaptism if, if one were baptized uh, in the name of the Trinity after they had been baptized, say, in the name of Jesus only or some other formula. It was considered a first-time baptism. Uh, because it was essential to the early church, uh, from the early church formulations, that the that person be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, once we understood the significance of the Nicene Creed in our journey to Orthodoxy, we didn't any longer uh, rebaptize people. The only people we would quote rebaptize would be people that had not been baptized in the name of the Trinity. Would baptism then be considered the sacrament of reception of, of Jesus or baptized into him? Uh, then what would chrismation be? Well, chrismation... And do we not receive the Spirit in baptism? 
chrismation is considered a sacrament that completes our baptism. And uh, you don't chrismate apart from baptism. Even in my case, I was chrismated by Metropolitan Philip, but it certainly would be considered, I think, by him and by the church as being an extension of the full and the fulfillment of my baptism. Uh, Father Nasser or uh, any of you, brother, you want to? Am I right on that? Yeah. Okay. Be of, of water and of the spirit. Yes, of be water little. and of the spirit. The question is, I was speaking about Peter's baptism. Yes. Was that that he was baptized with John's baptism? No, it appears, you know, that Jesus later, I don't know if Jesus himself baptized Peter, we do know that the twelve did the baptizing for Jesus as soon as they got baptized. Now, did he baptize them? I would assume he did. I was just wondering, I don't come from an Orthodox background, and we sing a hymn, what can wash away my sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so, if Jesus had not died and shed his blood at that point, the baptisms that were... Baptism wouldn't work without the shedding of the blood of Jesus. You see, yeah. baptism would be ineffectual. And, and in fact, you remember uh, uh, there was a case in which St. Paul baptized some people in the name of the, the Trinity because they'd been baptized by John's baptism only uh, at Ephesus. Uh, perhaps because he realized that these men, did, they did not have a complete faith at that point. Did they all have to be rebaptized in Ephesus? I don't know. Did they all have to be rebaptized? <laughs> all of John's disciples, you mean? I don't. I don't know. John's disciples had to become Christian. They 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 all had to become believers in Christ. But you see. Uh, but you said he, when Jesus went down into the water, he sanctified the, the water waters of baptism forever. So if he sanctified them before and after, maybe that took care of it. Well. I can assure you of this, if there happened to be some of John's disciples who didn't get baptized with, the, with Christian baptism, uh, the grace of God certainly is not going to leave them out if they belong in the kingdom of God one way or the other. It's for sure that God's grace is greater than human limitations. He said about the Trinity. Trinity is discovered by a religious Christian in Macedonia in 600. How come John baptized He can baptize the Trinity. There wasn't Trinity that Trinity, you mean like Father, Son, and Holy yeah. Spirit? Well, that's, uh, that's from the beginning. The great revelation in the baptism is the revelation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 28, we're commanded by Jesus himself to go and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity, the, it was Christ who revealed the Trinity to us. Uh, I don't know if you mean by the word Trinity. I don't know when that first started being used. Second century. Second century. Yeah. From Antioch. From Antioch. Yeah. Thank you for telling me about this. <laughs> 
eternity, even if you contemplate really on the Lord's Prayer, is there. Yes. If you really read the Lord's Prayer, it is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's really there, very deep. It, it, this is this is so important to understand, and, and obviously I'm out of time. But the revelation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Christ and in the Gospels and in the early Christian faith was the, in a sense, the dramatic difference between Christianity and Judaism and Christianity and all other religions of the world. And Jesus said, I've come that they might to reveal the Father, that they might know the Father. And uh, He is the Son. The Father, of course, uh, is the Father. And for all eternity, the Father has been the Father. For all eternity, the Son has been the Son. For all eternity, the Spirit has been the Spirit. Yes, Father. Yeah. And, and following up on something that you had said earlier, I, th I think you're right that one of the questions that was raised, the connection between faith and baptism. Baptism is our personal and outward manifestation of the faith that we've accepted. Because I think if we look at the uh, case of Philip and the eunuch, he says, I believe all this, what else must I do? But he says, okay, <laughs> took him to the river and baptized him. So our baptism is, is that final act of our acceptance, because we can have as you said, this kind of intellectual kind of thing, but then we've got to demonstrate and show and act it out. We act it out through the mis the, the action of being baptized into uh, Christ. Thank you, Father. Father George. Um, thank you, Father Walker. Appreciate it. He has to drive back to Oklahoma City tonight, but I want him to have a little bit of time to mingle with the crowd. We have some coffee and a little bit of dessert over there. Um, Basil is also an Oklahoma City community. He has many years of experience as a, a Christian church, Church of Christ, church of Christ uh, minister and an Anglican priest for a while, right? And so he's here also, and um, you might want to ask him some questions. Father Constantine from Oklahoma City, we're grateful to have you with us and for bringing uh, Father Walker up here. And all of our guests, thank you for coming. Um, please take a few minutes and, and visit with our guests. Um, everyone that's here tonight, so we thank you again and hope to see you again. Okay. Okay. All right.